0: And in here this morning, we come to the New Testament letter of James, which you'll find towards the back of the New Testament. In the church Bibles, it's page 1213, or in the larger print Bibles, 1879. And as you can see, uh, the title of this series is Living Faith. And when we use the word faith... We're talking specifically about faith in Jesus Christ, that he is the Son of God who died for our sins, who is risen again, and who will return to judge the world. Along with the other writers of the New Testament, that is what James means by the word faith. In the New Testament, faith is not a vague thing. It means more than just, I'm interested in being spiritual, That may be what faith means for many people today. But in the New Testament, faith has a definite content. It is faith that our hope for the present and the future rests in Christ alone. That he is our only way to peace with God and eternal life with God. That is what James means by faith. So why are we calling this series Living Faith? Is there any other kind of faith in Jesus? We might wonder. Well, James is going to tell us there is such a thing as dead faith in Jesus. A person with dead faith will nod their head to the truth about Jesus, but that faith makes no difference to their life. And so that kind of faith is not true faith at all, because true living faith does make a difference to our life. One other thing that's helpful to know as we start this book is that the author, James, is the brother of Jesus. There are other Jameses mentioned in the New Testament, but the evidence points to this letter being written by the James who was Jesus' brother. And that gives this letter a unique flavor. Because we know from the New Testament Gospels that James did not always believe in Jesus. And by that I mean he didn't believe that Jesus was who he claimed to be, the Son of God. That's not too surprising. It would be pretty hard to accept the idea that your older brother was divine, I'm sure. But when we get to the New Testament book of Acts, we find that James became a leader in the early church. He was at the forefront of the movement that worshipped Jesus as God. So what caused that change in James's view of Jesus? Well, we're told in 1 Corinthians, when Jesus rose from the dead, James was one of the people he appeared to. Just imagine how that meeting must have gone. As James came to acknowledge, Jesus was who he had claimed to be. He did have power over death. And he really was not just James' older brother, but James's Savior and Lord. From then on, James lived to serve his Savior and Lord. And he wrote this letter to encourage others as they seek to do the same. In fact, this letter is full of echoes and applications of Jesus' own teaching. So let's hear what James has to say, and this morning we're going to look at the first eight verses of chapter one. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all, This is God's word. And it deals with with something that James describes as pure joy. But at first glance, what James describes as pure joy is probably not what you and I would think of as the least bit joyful. Never mind it being pure joy. But before we get to that, notice how James refers to himself in verse 1. Remember, this is the brother of Jesus' writing, but he calls himself a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. For James, his biological connection to Jesus is not what is significant. What is significant is being one of Jesus' people, united to him by faith and living to serve him. And that makes the next statement very significant because James says he is writing to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Now, we've just finished with the book of Deuteronomy. And so we have heard very recently about the 12 tribes. They came from the sons of Jacob. Jacob was the grandson of Abraham. Those 12 tribes made up the nation of Israel, biological descendants of Abraham. And at the end of Deuteronomy, we saw them poised to cross the Jordan River and then take possession of the land of Canaan. And the Old Testament goes on to record they did take possession of Canaan, but they also descended into a settled pattern of idolatry over generations. They turned away from the Lord who gave them the land, and they eventually ended up exiled from the land. But when Jesus began his ministry, he did something very significant. He chose for himself 12 disciples. And that was not an accident. Jesus was making a clear statement that he was bringing into being a new Israel. A new people of God. Not founded now on biological descent from Abraham, but founded on faith in Jesus himself. Allegiance to Jesus himself. And that truth is developed throughout the New Testament. The truth that membership of God's people does not depend on biology, it depends on faith. And James came to see that in his own situation. What mattered was not that Jesus was his biological brother, What mattered was that Jesus was his Savior and Lord. And in a similar way, the 12 tribes James writes to no doubt included many men and women of Jewish birth. The very first Christians were Jews. But what matters is their relationship to Jesus through faith, not their biological relationship to Abraham. And so the people of God now includes men and women from every people on earth. The true 12 tribes are made up of those who trust in Jesus. And as he writes to these fellow servants of Jesus Christ, you'll notice James wastes no time at all messing around with pleasantries. He gets right to the point in verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters whenever you face trials of many kinds. That might seem like a great way to turn people off, to get them to stop reading your letter before they've even got into it. But actually, the fact that James barrels right into this tells us trials were a significant issue for the people he's writing to. They don't want pleasantries from James. They want help dealing with their difficulties and aren't you and I the same we don't come to church we don't open our bibles looking for polite platitudes do we just empty words that sound vaguely positive without actually giving us any real help why would we get out of bed for that we want help don't we because we all face difficult things. Maybe you are the exception to that, but the majority of us here this morning find that there are distress signals going off in some area of our life. Even if nine out of ten things are going well for us, we all have something that's not going well or that is threatening to not go well. And the list is almost endless, the list of possibilities. Sickness, loneliness, betrayal, rejection, bereavement, injustice of some kind, 101 different kinds of disappointment or sources of stress. James calls those things trials. And he includes us all by speaking of trials of many kinds. You just fill in the blank as to what your particular trial is. And then notice that James calls you to consider it pure joy that you're facing that trial. That's probably not the help we were looking for. James does not say, I feel your pain, and I'm sorry. It is not fair that you're facing this trial. Now let me pray for you and ask God to take it away. No, James has the cheek to say, consider it pure joy that you're facing this trial. Think of it as a positive thing. More than just positive, think of it as something to rejoice over. Is James the kind of counselor you'd like to make an appointment with? Maybe not. But James is the counselor you and I need in our trials. Because he tells us the truth about them. In fact, he tells us two truths about God. And those truths help us get the right perspective on our trials. In these verses, James explains God's goal for us and God's commitment to us. If we belong to the people of God through faith in Jesus, these are the facts we need to take hold of. First, in verses 1 to 4, God's goal for us is wholeness. So far, James has told us to consider it pure joy when we face trials, but he has not yet told us why. And we need to hear why. Because there's nothing joyful about trials themselves. We need a good reason to consider them pure joy. And we get some help with that in verse 3. Consider it pure joy because you know that the testing of your faith Produces perseverance. Trials put pressure on our faith. They test it, just like resistance tests a muscle. And as resistance makes our muscles stronger, so testing can produce a persevering faith, a faith that keeps going because it's been made stronger by the testing that comes with trials. And that's a good thing. Perseverance is positive. The people from the Cambridge Dictionary announced recently that perseverance is their word of the year for 2021. So apparently we are interested in perseverance. But perseverance is not actually the main reason James gives we're considering it pure joy when we encounter trials. The joy comes from what perseverance can produce. The end of verse 4 says, it can make us mature and complete, not lacking anything. So trials can produce perseverance that can move us forwards towards wholeness. And that means the difficulties in our life are not pointless. They're not just random, unpleasant things that just happen to us. They can be a pathway to wholeness. That is certainly God's intention when he sends or allows trials in our lives. They are not sent to crush us as his people. They are not sent to make us bitter and cynical. They are sent to help us grow. In his letter to the Romans, the Apostle Paul explains what kind of growth we're talking about. He says that God's aim is to make us conformed to the image of his Son. That is what it means to be mature and complete, not lacking anything. It means being like Jesus, having the holy character that he had, being a whole human being like he was. And the prospect of that, James says, has got to be pure joy for broken human beings like us. And trials can do that. They can be the process that moves us towards wholeness. But they don't automatically do that. We've all known people, I would guess, who have been made harsh and bitter by the trials they've gone through. So notice how verse 4 calls us to respond in a certain way to trials. After saying in verse 3 that trials can produce perseverance, in verse 4 James says let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. James says that because we all have a strong tendency not to let perseverance finish its work. When a difficulty comes into our lives, isn't our first inclination to try and skip around it or jump over it or wriggle out of it. We just want it to go away so that we can get back to normal but our loving father in heaven wants to move us beyond normal because normal for you and me means not being like Jesus it means being immature and incomplete being selfish and self-centered living to serve ourselves instead of to serve God and others. And so when our priority in life is to avoid trials or do whatever it takes to get out of them, when that is our attitude, we are choosing to stay immature and incomplete. We are not letting perseverance finish its work. Now, of course, we have to acknowledge and we have to say clearly, there are times when the best thing we can do is to get out of a situation. There are times like that, but very often the way to maturity is not to run away. It's to face our situation and deal with it. Ed Welsh has written a very helpful book about addictions. And I think that what he says about substance abusers can help us to get the point James is making here. He says this. Addictive behaviors shield substance abusers from learning how to live. Instead of learning how to deal with conflicts in relationships or work, Abusers look to their idol, that's alcohol or drugs, they look to that idol to offer temporary fixes. And with each use of their substance, they lose skills in living. They bypass opportunities to grow in wisdom. No wonder they seem more and more like foolish children. The point he's making there is that addicts never grow up. They duck out of every difficulty by turning to drugs or alcohol. And so they never gain the maturity that comes from pushing through a difficulty and learning how to deal with it in a mature way. And here in our passage, James is making a similar point. Missing out on maturity is not a problem that is only faced by addicts. We all miss out when we, for example, give in to temptation instead of taking our stand and resisting it. We miss out when we run from a challenging situation. Or when we turn bitter over the disappointments in life instead of asking how we can learn from them. We all have a tendency to be addicted to comfort. And when our main priority is avoiding discomfort, then we miss out on opportunities to grow up into the Christ-like men and women God aims for us to be. And so having told us that God's goal for us is wholeness, James now challenges us. Don't run from the process that makes you whole. So just take a moment to think personally. What is the trial in your life right now? Maybe you'd say, I have a long list of trials. Well, if that's the case, then think of the main one. And ask yourself, am I only thinking about escaping it? Or, am I open to how God might use this trial to change me? To move me a step closer to wholeness? To Christ-like maturity? I'm not suggesting it's easy. Not easy even to see how we might grow in a particular situation. But what James has made very clear is that we certainly will not grow if our only concern is to escape difficulties. The first step is to begin to see our difficulties as opportunities. To see that as ugly and painful as they are, they are more than just ugly and painful. They can be used by our Father in heaven to move us towards wholeness. And James has good news for us at this point because he tells us our God is eager not only to lead us towards Christlikeness through our trials, he is eager to give us the right mindset, the right perspective on our trials, and he's eager to guide us in the midst of our trials. Look what James says in verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God. Now, we could apply that in all sorts of different ways. But here, in the context of this passage, James is talking specifically about lacking wisdom when it comes to our trials. We've just said we don't naturally respond to trials by asking how we might grow through them. And even when we try to do that, it's not easy to see what good work a particular trial might do in us. It's not easy to see how we're supposed to face a trial in such a way that it accomplishes its work in us. And it is that particular lack of wisdom James has in mind here. When you are in the thick of sickness, or rejection, or bereavement, or injustice, or deep disappointment, and you can't even begin to see how it might make you more like Jesus, and you certainly don't have a clue how to respond in a way that allows that work to take place in you, James says to us, when you lack that wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault. And it will be given to you. God is ready to give us the wisdom we need. And notice what James tells us about God's eagerness to give. He gives generously. The sense there is that he gives without reservation. He gives wholeheartedly. Not holding back, not skimping. And he gives to all. So please don't think that you are the one Christian God isn't going to help with this. I've only flown first class once in my life. And what I noticed was that people with a first class ticket get treated like they're more valuable than the rabble in the back of the plane. But James wants us to see it is not like that in God's family. That is not how he treats his children. He stands ready to give wisdom wholeheartedly to each one of his children. And he does it without finding fault. In other words, our Father in heaven does not reproach us for not being the finished article. He does not scold us for lacking wisdom. And he's not going to scold us because we've already asked him for wisdom five times already this week. He remembers that we are dust, the Bible says. He doesn't expect us to be the finished article. He loves to supply the wisdom we need as often as we need it. And so the second truth we need to grasp about our God is that his commitment to us is wholehearted. Not only does he have the goal of wholeness for us, he is fully engaged in getting us to that goal. And in light of this truth about God, James challenges us a second time. Don't try to live with a divided heart. Look at verse 6. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. The words double-minded are literally double-souled and back in verse six the word doubt has the sense of being at odds with yourself so these verses are not talking about those moments when we waver in our faith this is about trying to live with divided loyalties trying to hedge our bets thinking that we'll ask God for wisdom, yes, and if we like his wisdom, then we'll go with it. But if we don't like it, well, then we reserve the right to trust our own wisdom instead or to look for wisdom elsewhere, to get a second opinion. So, for example, if we ask God for wisdom in our trial and his wisdom calls us to forgive a difficult person, instead of holding a grudge against that person. Or if God's wisdom leads us to ask for forgiveness instead of holding on to our pride in some situation. Or if his wisdom calls us to recognize that we've been idolizing a loved one, perhaps, or idolizing a perfect family, or a perfect marriage, or perfect health. And if God's wisdom tells us we need to give up our idolatry, if God's wisdom shows us that, and then we are trying to live with a divided heart, if having sought his wisdom, we then decide to ignore it and go with some other wisdom. Maybe the wisdom that says, she doesn't deserve my forgiveness. She deserves this thing I can do to get revenge. We're trying to live with a divided heart if we decide to go on idolizing the loved one we've lost. As if even God himself couldn't make up for the loss of that person. We're trying to live with a divided heart if we continue to idolize the past glories of our lives and act like God has let us down because our bodies aren't what they used to be or we don't have the independence we used to have or the successes we used to have. Have you ever done anything like that? Looked for God's wisdom And then decided instead you were going to go with your own plan B. Because God's wisdom wasn't to your liking. That is trying to live with a divided heart. And it is a surefire way to an unstable life, James says. Verse 7, if we're going to hedge our bets like that, James says, we cannot expect God to go on giving us wisdom. Instead, verse 8, our lives will be unstable. And James illustrates that instability at the end of verse 6. Quite graphically, he compares the person who tries to live with a divided heart to a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. I have sailed many times on the ferry from Stranraer in Scotland to Larne in Northern Ireland. A fair few of those times the sea has been churning during the crossing and I have been as sick as a dog. The thing that's sickening is the constant change in motion. And that's also a sickening way to live. Tilting towards God's wisdom one day then rolling back on our own wisdom or the wisdom of this world the next day. There's no true stability in that kind of life. And there's no joy in it either. It's the way to a seasick life. But when we come to God wholeheartedly, admitting that we can't understand our situation, admitting we don't know what to do in our trial or how to cope with it, when we come that way and commit to live by His wisdom, however hard it is, we do find a stability and a joy even in trials because we know God will work to lead us forward to maturity, to Christ-likeness even. And he will supply what we need wholeheartedly. God's wholehearted commitment to his people is a beautiful aspect of his character. And you and I are moving towards wholeness ourselves as we begin to be wholehearted in our commitment to God's wisdom. As we give up hedging our bets and commit to follow the wisdom he supplies. As we consider the way James has challenged us and the way James has pointed us to our God, let's pray. Father, we have heard your word, and your word has invited us to ask for what we need. And so we come to you now in all our varied situations and the varied distresses and disappointments of our lives. We come in all of these trials that are represented among us. And we ask you first for undivided hearts. Hearts that have given up hedging their bets. Hearts that are ready to receive and to follow your wisdom. And then we ask you to give us, please, the wisdom we need. So that we can have the right perspective on our trial. So we can have the right response to the person or the circumstances we face. We want to be men and women who are growing in maturity, who are moving towards wholeness. We don't want to be sliding towards bitterness. We don't want to remain immature. And so will you help us, our wise father, who gives generously to all, without finding fault. We love your character. We trust your generosity. We love the stability there is in giving ourselves to you without reserve. So come and carry on your good work in us. Amen. Let's respond together as we sing when we walk with the Lord in the light of his word.